Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at aol at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me aol. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. It's been a minute. We've taken a little bit of a break because, to be perfectly honest, I needed a break. You know, I've been podcasting for the past eight years, nine years now. And, uh, yeah, I just needed a moment. As you know from listening to the URM podcast, there's time periods where, you know, especially, for instance, the pandemic, where we would do three episodes a week. And, uh, you know, it's ebbed and flowed over the years, but... Over the past year, I really needed to take a step back and just refill the gas tank, so to speak, because I was starting to feel really burnt out on podcasting. Not that the guests are less interesting. Actually, the guests are great, but I just started to feel like things were getting stale for me. So step back and took a little break, but we're back. And our first guests back are from the band The Zenith Passage, Mr. Derek Ridquist and Justin McKinney. Now, I'm stoked to have them on because very, very rarely does a band in these uh, technical metal genres turn my head. They turn my head in a way that I'm like, okay, this person, this band, this group of people are advancing the genre. And I know that because I make this kind of music, kind of, that it's one part composition, one part performance, but there's also a very, very important part of how it's engineered, how it's recorded. Like, there's a very specific art and skill to recording, mixing, producing this genre of music, which is why I wanted to have them on the URM podcast. They have a brand new album that just came out on Metal Blade called Did Elysium. 
And I would suggest that you go listen to it before you listen to this podcast, because everything we talk about in the podcast is going to make so much more sense if you have heard the record. And you'll also understand why I am so excited about it. All right, let's get into it. Derek Ridquist, Justin McKinney, welcome to the URM podcast. Hello. Hey, thanks for having us. My pleasure. I am stoked to have you all on here because I guess I'm like a recent fan of the band. And what I thought was interesting was I didn't know who all was in the band or anything. Just we have the same A&R guy, Metal Blade. Um, shout out Ryan. And he just told me about you guys and said that you were sick. And I, independent of anyone who was in the band, I was like, wow, this band is, uh, this band's got it going on. Come to find out you all have some serious lineage. And then it all kind of made sense once I, once I realized that this is not like, it's not a bunch of noobs. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I was like, okay, this, this all, this all, uh, makes sense to me. But anyways, I wanted to say that I find what you guys do to be interesting because it very much follows in the tradition of tech death, the good side of it, but it's very much charting new territory too. And I think that that's something rare on the tech side of things. Like I feel like with a few exceptions, a lot of the same has been happening since Necrophagus, like just a regurgitation of that. And so when I hear something new, like you guys or Arcspire or whatever, like every once in a while you hear somebody taking it and going further with it. I, I always want to give props to it. Hell yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Cool. Uh, Episode done. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so out of curiosity, when you're writing, and I feel like I already know the answer to this, but the tech side of it, is that just a byproduct of you writing the stuff you feel? You just feel stuff that happens to be insane like that? Or is it something that you're consciously going for? Um, well, no, like my thing's always been, at least I think now that I've grown up more, is that uh, I don't want to write things for the sake of being technical. And I think that might be some somewhat of, of a thing in in this little genre. So sometimes things just come out harder than you'd like <laughs> and <then laughs> you have to play it. So, uh, but yeah, a lot of the time, yeah. Like, like for example, our newest single Divinertia too, that was a song that, okay, like this is like, we're just going to go all out and try to make a song that is uh, paying homage to, to like necrophages, but also trying to try new things. And that was a song that of course turned out, extremely you know technical in the in the vein of necrophages but i think as a whole the record data elysium is like kind of just pure i try to stick more into the emotion side of it and i think it kind of shows a lot more on this record that it's like we're kind of i feel like we're playing a little more passionately and from the heart than just trying to like sound Technical for the sake of being technical. I guess. You can tell. You can tell. I, I think that's why like, I connected with it when I first heard it is nowadays, and I'm curious what your opinions are on this. Nowadays, with the fact that everybody can record to some level and 
we all have the same tools. Like it's no longer a thing where only some bands get to go to a million dollars. Well, I guess that's true. Only some bands go to a million dollar studio, but the tools to make this all happen are available to almost everyone. And so you get a lot of bands who get very caught up with what you can do both on the instrument and then what you can do with the tools to make it sound crazier. And I think it's just an evolution of what back in the day was guitar players that would just shred for the sake of shredding that it kind of evolved into like shredding Mm -hmm. plus editing stuff to an insane level, but forgetting the music and the bands that I think stick out are the ones who have that skill set, but didn't forget about the music or the art side of it. In, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah, like like you're saying, the technology allows you to kind of dissect everything that you do. And I I've, I know that I'm a, someone who gets caught in the details a lot. And also through technology, I kind of go outside of my playing ability, like writing-wise, um, like for tools like Guitar Pro. Um, sometimes it's like not even having a guitar in hand and then writing it and then realizing that you got to actually play that. And I think that kind of is a thing where it gets overly ambitious to do. Um, but then it's like taking all those crazy riffs and not making, trying to make a riff soup and trying to just stick more to like a, an identifiable like song structure that people can like hum out. So yeah, I think, I definitely think technology has a lot to do with how things are now and having the access to all these platforms. I think also that it's like where the role of a vocalist steps into this type of music as well. Also, Justin used this term earlier, like as I get older, like I'm more open to admitting that like I'm a fan of the music we're creating and I'm a fan of the band that I'm in. Like I'm not an original member of the Zenith Passage, right? Like I joined because I like the music that Justin and company have created in the past. So it's like, I'm not writing these crazy riffs. I think the riffs are crazy too. And like, it's my role as vocalist to kind of translate them and make it feel followable and organic and like help guide the listener through. And I think that might be something different about what we're doing. You know, um, like, I, a song, I, like I, an actual song. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I jokingly, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm mostly serious, but like I'm, I'm like ruining the song by yelling over it. So I want to like make sure that I'm enhancing it in in the best way possible rather than like trying to be the focus. And I think that helps us like tell the story of the song in a more cohesive way rather than everyone just being all over the place. Like I'm paying respect to everything that's happening in there and kind of thinking of myself last and trying to make sure that that's part of the thought process. Yeah, the vocalist in my band has made the same joke, actually. Like, <laughs> sometimes he'll just be like, and it's, it's a joke. None of us think this or anything. But sometimes he'll just be like, I'm just the idiot that screams over this shit. You got to talk to them about it. But like, <laughs> that's not really it at all, because the vocals are what, it, at the end of the day, that's what makes it a song, in my opinion. Like, yeah, there are instrumental bands that kill, uh, but like, a song as we know it, like a song song, no vocals, no song at the end of the day. Like might have a cool piece of music, but like a song song. Yeah. That's no vocals, no song. And that, and so I, I feel like that is the make or break really at the end of the day. But 
I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> Not joking that the wrong kind of brutal vocals can ruin really good music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that like you, it could happen, but uh, it doesn't happen in your case, but it definitely could happen. Okay. So speaking of when you're working on the vocal parts, like what is a, what's part of the process for making sure that it actually complements and doesn't just like step all over it. Um, I think like, I always try to think in death metal music or just most metal music in general that the vocal is another rhythmic instrument. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, how do you accent and embellish certain moments in a song with an, an additional rhythmic element? And that's that's like my whole process when it comes to to doing like death metal vocals. And Derek and I get together and we start humming out patterns of like what we think could work to complement the riff or the drums uh, or some other like musical accent happening. So that's where we start. We start off just kind of whispering patterns. It's really, really embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, we like Derek will write the lyrics and then we'll sit down and then we'll plug in all the lyrics into the, the hummed out patterns that we, we made. So doing that too is like a whole massive uh, situation in itself just because of like sometimes the like the syllables don't match with the rhythm so and then like enunciating the the syllable doesn't really flow off the tongue well so then you have to turn around and adjust the syllable to fit in that in that puzzle piece so there's a there's a lot to do like all around with with just vocal production and this kind of music and like Derek's one who does it so he he can probably like talk a little bit more about how that that process yeah. so it's, it's pretty interesting and it's pretty convoluted to be honest because like i don't know like i think most modern bands that i know like don't have you know band practice four times a week and you're not like sitting there learning everything together at the same time all the time so that's right um, you know i get i get the songs and we work on them collaboratively and then ultimately where it comes together is like being in the room with Justin as the composer of the song. He has a much more intimate understanding of the song, right? So I might have an idea where I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And he'll be like, well, like kind of the the most interesting note of that riff got, gets covered up by that blah, blah. And so we want to let that part breathe. And then your vocal would come back in on this counterpoint that makes it more interesting. And like, I don't have that level of knowledge necessarily. So like, it's really interesting to take like my caveman idea sometimes interspersed with this more intimate knowledge and we slam them together and it kind of creates this, you know, more of a special combination of like more straightforward emotive stuff combined with some of the technical wizardry that's going on in, in the songs themselves. And like Justin was saying, I think one of the hardest parts of the hurdles is like, we'll whisper out a song and, you know, we're, we're literally just going like, you know, it's like very embarrassing as Justin said. And so like, maybe that sounds cool in a like mapped out vocal pattern. And then you write like your favorite line of lyrics you've ever written, but it's like, and just like those different consonant sounds don't flow. So we'll go to record it. And it's like, uh, damn, that actually sucks. 
now we have to like write new lyrics or try a new pattern to make that good line fit. So it's kind of like I, when I think about writing and creating the vocals for a band like this, it's almost like solving the world's hardest puzzle <laughs> the way <laughs> that I think about it in my brain. And it's like, sometimes you get the right piece. Sometimes you get the wrong piece and it's a lot of, or I also say like refrigerator magnet poetry. It's like, Oh, well, that word, yes. if you, if you change the order and the tense, you can get the same meaning of that line and then it will flow phonetically better into the song. And so it's just a lot of, you know, a lot of thought. And then, then it's ready for performing and we usually do pretty well at the performance once it's figured out how it should go. Yeah. And also like, I think the music is so intense too, that I feel like most people who, not most people, but people who just like listen to it, not having known what tech death is or death metal is, but they know metal, they can, I think it's easily digestible because the vocal I feel for the most part is very straightforward and identifiable in the whole metal spectrum. Like there's like, there's a cadence to it and there's a meter to it that you can pick up really easy. And then like, I at least would hope through that because a lot of people can identify metal and they listen to metal because the vocal sometimes. Um, so maybe through listening to the vocal and hearing how like the vocal rhythm is, they can start identifying the patterns in the riff. And then, then like maybe they start unraveling like a whole new thing in the song. So I don't know. Like, I think it's like a little more digestible for a main audience, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, I also think that taking care to not cover up the cool musical elements is a big deal because I hear bands mess that up a lot to where you might have a good vocal pattern and then you might also have a really good uh, musical part, but together they're stepping on each other and one of them is getting sacrificed. Yeah, totally. Uh, and I think that uh, what I like about what you're doing is that it doesn't sound like anything's really getting sacrificed. It all kind of works together. So it's it's interesting to hear that there's thought placed into not covering up certain elements and making that all work together. I can imagine that that must take a lot of time. Yeah, the the it was a very uh, a very stressful process doing the vocal tracking everything but i think it plugging in everything and trial and error like really kind of worked there was a there was a, a situation in the title track data elysium where <clears throat> there's a really cool riff happening and then the, then the vocal kicks in and that's when all the counterpoints happening but it it would be odd to not have a vocal there so we had to put a vocal there but we had to do it so sparsely that it is just like hardly a vocal line, but yeah. it's still Derek is still there and he's accenting certain rhythmic parts just so like just so like quickly that you kind of forget that there's a vocal and it it seems that like I don't know, it seems like you're not losing much. Like it's like you don't notice that there's not much vocal happening there because it's just so like sparsely put in. And you can also take in the counterpoint that's happening. And that was a vocal that didn't sound very good. Like it like not the take or anything, but just like the the rhythmic value to that riff. But I think now that we listen back on it, it's like, I mean, what else could you have done to like yeah. to be any better? Because it was that, like that, some situation that we were just playing a hundred percent on, you know, and 
I think it just finally got so imbued in our subconscious listening to it that it's just like, okay, that's just, it works. Yeah, that the line he's specifically talking about is on like this really cool riff. And like, I think it's one of the only points of contention that we might've had, like in discussing the vocals, like I really didn't want to do a vocal on it, but then listening to it, it's like, shit, there's not, it's been too long since the last vocal almost. And we have to like bring it back to the, the core of the sound. And like, we spent a lot of time on that line because like I, the the line or what, what that line, I don't even remember at this point, but um, you know, it's, it was about something, but it was too long. So we had to cut it back. And then it, we, it was like, well, now it doesn't mean that anymore. And now I don't know how to get it to mean that again. And then I've lost what it was supposed to mean in the first place. And then it's just like this crazy cycle that I get in like lyrically or psychologically of like, well, now it doesn't support the rest of the story of the, <laughs> that the song is telling. And I don't even know what I'm bothered about anymore. So ultimately we tracked it and it sounds good. Oh, actually, I do know why. I I don't like that line. <laughs> Every word ends in the same syllable. Every word ends in shun. It's like, jun, 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 and I'm just like, ah, it all it just sounds like the same word over and over again to me. A drinking. But, we should start where uh, every you take a shot every time you hear a shun. <laughs> oh man, there's so many shuns. Or or every time you hear a yeah. The Hetfield lick. So so something like that, where you notice something sounding super samey, is that something that you'll notice after the fact, like, oh, that's too samey? Or is it something in the process of working you're trying to consciously avoid or both? I think it's a uh, bit both, honestly. Like, at least for me, like, I know that, like, you get caught up in one small part for so long and then you, after you finally nailed it, you go back, you listen to it, and you're like, oh man, like everything has this same cadence or everything has like a similar like feel to it. And then you start like digging more in the details. But then, like, say, like, okay, let's listen back from the start of the song. And then you listen to the whole song, and then you get to that one part, and it, that which you got caught up in the fine details doesn't really matter as much anymore because it's like the grand scheme of the song. Mm-hmm. But, but I think. Definitely, we spent a lot of time like refining so many things in the lyrics and the patterns to make sure that it's not monotonous in any way. But sometimes, yeah, like taking a step back and listening can also prove to be a solution too. Yeah, like knowing how it fall, how it lands over time is a big yeah. deal. I also think that there's like some sounds in in the context of death metal that just sound better than others, like a shun sound or a yah sound or a, like you can end words powerfully or you can let them fizzle, fizzle out. And ultimately like you're not necessarily singing along to these songs and you're, you're, you're here to hear the sound of this rhythmic, almost percussive instrument that is the death metal voice. And if you can create the sound that supports the part better, like ultimately I think that should, should take it over. It's hard to accept that sometimes during, because you're like, ah, oh, man, that's not the word I ex- intended to use, but now I got to use it. But when you listen back, you're like, oh, that's badass. Or like, yeah, that definitely helps us get to the next line. 
or, or something we had talked about a little earlier is like, you know, maybe you wrote this, this sick line that ends in like an X sound and you immediately have to pick up with like an N sound on the next line of lyrics. Like that's not going to happen. Yeah. And so you kind of have to sacrifice that in order to get the right performance sometimes. And it always works out and it sounds cool, but like, you know, when you're writing a lyric and then you try to perform that lyric, it might not always work out. And yeah, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And it sounds like you're, you're going into it expecting to, I guess, get a lot of feedback and do multiple iterations. It sounds like. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's, it's, kind of a reverse process. Like, I wish I had more time to be like a lyricist and show up and be like, I've got this piece of paper with like every song written, but it's usually kind of like, all right, the song is ready for lyrics now and it's time to write them. And so, you know. What you got. The, yeah, it's it's kind of like, now I have the song and I we've created the blueprint. Now it's time to fill the blueprint in with actually actual words, build it, you know? And so... You know, it's sometimes it's it's more like mechanical, and it's like we gotta gotta fill those gaps. And sometimes uh, inspiration really strikes, and it's like, all right, I got this line, and I'm not changing this line. I'm gonna build the song around it. Um, but yeah, definitely expecting feedback. I think like in this corner of music, like if you're not accepting feedback and you're not iterating, then it's not gonna work because there are so many moving parts firing at such fast speeds that everything needs to be under scrutiny and you need to be able to be like, nah, or like do that, do that again. Or, you know, it just, we have to be open to, to the criticism and Hmm. amongst ourselves and that understanding if it's not the best, then we shouldn't be doing it. What's the process for feedback amongst you guys? I don't know. I think it's like, We'll get through the part that we're both happy with. I also keep multiple parts of the of the take just in case we want to switch something out. And then we just kind of sit on it and listen back. And then like again, like if it's like, okay, we're getting caught in the details, let's let's listen from the beginning of the song and then see how everything lies. And then uh from there, be like, no, you know what, that just Derek could say or I could say, like, you know what, there's just something about that part that just doesn't really work. And they're like, all right, yeah, let's just try it and keep trying it. And now we'll keep trying it and we'll keep the take and then jump, like jump it in there or drop it in there and then see like how it feels now. And then as soon as I think we're both like, okay, yeah, it's sick. Or like we like laugh or something. Then we know like, yeah, oh, <laughs> like it's sick. It often ends, like Justin said, like with laughing at the part. And if it's like, whoa, like that one is weird or the, that one like had a strange connotation to it. Like that one got, if that can get a reaction out of us to like be smiling and happy and laughing about it, then it's a good one for sure. But I'm open to being corrected or called or well, What if you're not to, feeling something? Oh, then I think. There's a couple on this record that I was like, I don't like that take. And Justin is like, no, that one was cool. Like, we're, we're going to keep that one. That one's cool. And I'll be like, let me take it 10 more times. You know, and then, of course, we keep the one that was cool because, you know, he's he's hearing it better than I am because I'm sitting in the freaking room yelling as loud as I humanly can. Like, I'm I'm losing the context of the song. Often, I'm just recording to a click track and I'll be like, I'm going to do it 10 times in a row right now. I'm going to do it 
I'm going to do it mid. I'm going to do it low. I'm going to do it mid low. I'm going to do it tough guy. I'm going to do it Hetfield. I'm going to do it Ackerfelt. And then I'm going to do it three more times without thinking about it. And then we'll be like, there's a vibe. Let's, let's proceed. Yeah. Yeah. There's been times where Derek's like, I don't like that part. I'm like, well, it's sick. And then he's like, let me just, just like, give me a couple more takes. I'm like, all right. So he does it. And then we throw in them like, yeah, you're right. Like that's definitely like way more sick. And then like vice versa, like it goes both ways. So it's like, we just kind of, I think we have like little checks in there to make sure that we can both like think we can get more out of it or something as opposed to like, just kind of like accepting that, that, that it's done. Like we try to, I think both push to see like what else more we can get out of a take. Yeah. I think what's, what's important to note is that it's like entirely constructive, right? It's never like that was what a dumb idea or like this sucks. You know, it's like you can do better or their timing was a little off. Can you tighten it? You know, then we'll discuss like, well, why am I coming in wrong? And then I can understand the song better so we can then perform it better live and in studio. So it's just like, Part of the, the refinement process is done in the studio and it helps the total package of the band. Totally. And like it, like you got to be open to it and want wanting what's best for the product, which is, you know, our art and what we're releasing to the world. So we want to be as proud of it as we can. It's hard to be objective about your own parts, especially when you're tracking. Cause like I know with guitar, um, you know, you're not only hearing what, you're playing, you're hearing noise in the room, you're feeling the vibration of the instrument through your body, you're focusing on whatever parts you're playing to. Even if it's a click, you're hearing that. Like your brain is, and if you're engineering yourself, then part of your attention is going towards that as well. So your attention is being split up over multiple, multiple different things. And so you don't really have a hundred percent to devote to scrutinizing performance, which is where a good uh, collaborator comes in or listening back. But I've noticed that I, I don't know when I did a good or bad job generally. Like it's, it's not really accurate. Like if I feel like I did a great take, that doesn't mean shit till I hear it and know for sure. Yeah. And yeah. vice versa, you know, like a terrible take too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like I think that's just like a a situation where it's like a head game, you know, you just like you think it's like, oh, you know what? That was the best one. Like I can stop. That was the best one. And then you go back and you listen to it and there's like something you can find in there and you're like, God damn it. Like <laughs> and then like the one it's cool too, because the one that you thought wasn't the best take ends up being the take you use because it just works in the context of the song. I think also my attitude is that like I am a, a supporting instrument in the band, right? Like I'm not, for some people I might be carrying the show for others. I might not be. And I want to make sure that I'm supporting it properly. And if, if what I think is, is good to someone else isn't, I'm open to hearing why I work in like a, a like a big corporate business and i think over like the last six years of working in that industry is like my objectivity has gone like boom way up like i don't take much personally anymore because all my job is is like presenting stuff to people and then being like yes but yes but no 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 and it's like 
okay, cool. They're, we're just trying to make something better. And like, I can apply that same ethic in the studio to being like anything that's said in here is in the interest of making this much better. Like I I might be like, that was sick. And it's like, yeah, but it doesn't sound right. Like sometimes I'll, I'll get like a really nice take that I'm like, that's the best take. And then we'll listen back. And it's like, just the timbre is so slightly off that we can't keep it. And it like hurts to throw it away, but we just have to be like, what do you want to retake the whole song and try to emulate that timbre? Or do you want to just try it again and get one just as good in the right tone? And it's like, ah, shit. Okay. Let's, let's, let's try it and make sure that we're getting it right. Rather than being like, no, that's the best. And I sound cool. So I want it there. Like, I don't really care. I want to be an equal member and participate in edifying the song. Were you about to say something, Justin? Oh, no, I was agreeing a hundred percent. Yeah. It's really important. I think to kind of like get outside yourself with this stuff, because at the end of the day, if you're fighting for something that doesn't fit the song, just because you feel good about it, it's uh, what are you really doing? Uh, And I've seen that. I've seen that happen a lot. And it's, uh, it's very destructive, but also I think it's, it like, some bands are just kind of, they just lucked out and all the relationships and personality types just kind of naturally work that way. But I think a lot of bands also have to consciously try to like be professional like that and keep their egos out of it and just, you know, keep their eye on the prize. But I know a lot of bands who have overcome those types of issues just by communicating more. And like, con- like anytime someone is starting to get out of line with that, correct them and uh, just kind of keep on realigning on the goal. So I think that even if it's not like the natural state for a lot of musicians, because, you know, people are passionate about what they do and, uh, you know, dealing with uh, stuff that's very personal. So people can really, really get into it. It's a good thing to have like open lines of communication and a lot of trust between members to where people can correct each other and your head's getting a little big. Maybe for the next record, Metal Blade can get us a band psychiatrist <laughs> and they can sit in the studio and make sure we're all getting along and Man, everything's copacetic. That movie. <laughs> it's so that good. Movie, <laughs> it, it's still uncomfortable to watch. I've actually only seen it once, but I, it's amazing. I love it. I saw it once when it came out and then I saw it once again like two years ago. And it was way more uncomfortable two years ago. I couldn't couldn't, props to them for putting that out there because like, I don't know, that just takes some serious balls to like knowingly portray, like put, put that up looking like that. And just, it's just an eternal target, but like they're, they're sick and they're like, yeah, you know, they're like the greatest of all time. So. It's interesting to be able to see that that layer of it and that they're big enough to be able to do something like, fuck it, we're going to show you how it is, even if it's petty and weird and awful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like we're just human too, you know? Like, yeah. They like, they're just as human as we are. They're not some kind of monster or some, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Uh, so guitar <laughs> tracking. Uh, Hold on. That that was good though. 
(laughs) Congrats. So guitar tracking. I know you can actually play this stuff, but I also know that there's like a lot that goes into tracking this style of music because I track this style of music. So I know what goes into it. Like nobody actually on these recordings plays it start to finish like, like a jam band or something. It's just not how you do it, but there's a big difference, you know, between faking it and then just constructing it. And I think that the thing about this style of music is it has to be constructed because they're like you kind of like you were saying earlier, so many moving pieces and it's coming at you so fast and it used to be so precise. Like there's just no room for error on with this kind of stuff. So it has to be constructed, but there's a right way to do it and kind of a, a bunch of bad ways to do it. I would say that with the way you track guitar, that is one of the only right ways I know of to put this kind of stuff together. So I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the tracking process because I think what I've noticed is a lot of people don't know how to get takes that are constructed, but don't feel constructed. And they, it has to be both like, cause you got to construct this stuff. It's just part of uh, achieving that kind of, I guess, perfection. Yeah. But also without sounding like guitar pro basically. Yeah. And guitar pros to blame for a lot of this because uh, <laughs> you get carried away in the moment, you know, like I like, I like to write everything or not everything, but I like to write the complicated stuff in guitar pro because I need to get it out of my system before I lose the riff. And when you're trying to do that in your DAW on a guitar and you're trying to just figure out the riff, you get so lost in trying to just play it that you lose the riff. So doing that in guitar pro and just allowing you to blurted out has been a huge help in in writing some of this stuff. And can I pick your brain about that a little bit? Because that's blowing my mind. It's blowing my mind because and I use Guitar Pro. So I've been using it for a long time, but mostly to document things. The idea of writing in it, like I'm not like I know that some people write shitty music in it or music that can't be played. But I know lots of people who do awesome stuff in it. So like, this is not like a knock on guitar player or anything like that. It's just, you do it great. So I kind of, I want, I want to know, like when you have guitar player in front of you, are you, you basically so proficient at it that you can program something into it quickly enough that, and you just kind of know how it's going to feel on guitar or something like, yeah, I honestly a lot of the time that I'm I'm trying to plug in a riff, I don't even have a guitar on me. Like I'll just kind of hear it and then put it in. But it's not like I'm using Guitar Pro for everything in a song, like for the whole feel of everything. Like I kind of have it written in my DAW and then and track to like a click track and feeling it out that way. But like the more complicated riffs that require like some more thinking, I've discovered over the years that it's a, it's easier for me to just open guitar pro and try to find that riff before I lose it because you get so caught up in trying to figure it out in reality that you can sometimes lose focus of yeah, the goal. That, that makes a lot of sense. Cause contrary to popular belief, you can't just play this shit when you write it. Like you got it. Like nobody can do that. Like there's not a single person who just shits this stuff out and can just like play it album quality. Just boom. Yeah. Like, yeah, everybody's demos for this kind of stuff are uh, are funny, basically. 
So, because it's a, you can't, you just can't. So that makes a lot of sense. I've never seen Justin use Guitar Pro, but I've seen him use other software that's involved with creating this music, like demoing drums or, you know, editing the session or, or building the live session. And it, he moves fast. Like it's, it's freakishly fast. Like he understands the in and out of these things. So I believe him when he says he hears a riff and he can probably just go into Guitar Pro and like spit it out really fast because that's what I figured I've seen it in in other applications. So I imagine what I bet you're probably best at guitar pro. So I bet it's like lightning fast. So, you know, the first time that I was exposed to something like that was actually when Doth uh, got signed, a really good set of circumstances happened and Colin Richardson mixing our first album and in like 2006. And I got to go to England to watch him mix. And this was like my first time being around people of that level, like working with them. I had been kind of, I had like been adjacent or whatever, but this is the first time, like we're here for three weeks and you're mixing my music. And I, like, this is crazy. And I remember his engineer was laying samples and I'd never seen anything like that. He was just like machine gunning the samples across the screen and like, three minutes, an entire song was laid. And now I know how people do that stuff, you know, macros, key commands, all that stuff, but you still got to know exactly what you're doing. But in 2006, to see someone do that, it was fucking mind blowing. And then it just like dawned on me that like, okay, this is kind of, it's kind of like the speed at which people who operate the technology need to be moving at to actually to be competitive basically. So like hearing that, like you move fast, doesn't, doesn't surprise me. It kind of, it fits. Yeah. It's mind blowing to see. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen, I've seen some people do it like Mike, Mike Keen to bring him up. He, he's a guy who works in, uh, in superior drummer and he's really quick at it too. But yeah, like it's just something that I've been doing since I was a kid, you know, like I discovered superior drummer and like right when I graduated high school and then like I learned, how to use guitar pro or even before guitar pro like power tab and tabit i've been doing that since like i was in high school so and that allowed me to like not only like figure out how to play most of the songs that i i like really wanted to play but discover more about like technique and discover more about what i can do and just through like probably like 10 15 years of of using uh guitar pro it's it's like second nature for me. Like I'm on my number pad, just kind of programming everything. But, and same thing with superior drummer. It's like, I have a, a process of, of just kind of going through in the piano roll and laying everything out, but it's just become a second nature, you know, like it's hard to, to not use that, that application and, and writing this kind of music because of it requires so much focus and attention to detail. But if I was writing like something like that's not metal, like I would just write straightly, like strictly in my DAW. But for this really technical stuff, like, yeah, you, like you mentioned, you cannot just play it, <laughs> especially when you're trying to like explore more of your palette and explore more of a really interesting rhythmic idea that you probably never would have done if you didn't have a tool like Guitar Pro in front of you to be able to explore that. So to like go back and talk about the, the process of like tracking, it's like, yeah, like, if if and anyone who doesn't know this no one is one taking any of this stuff <laughs> <laughs> no <Nope. laughs> 
No one. Now, it doesn't matter how good they are. Nobody is doing that. Well, nor nor maybe should you. Like if no. if the goal is is perfection, like I don't know if that should be expected. I mean, you mentioned that jam band. Like, sure, fish. Like, go for it. Like, play a forty-five minute song and keep keep all the blisters and keep all the mess ups. Or you know, my guitar player in my project, John Frum, he plays with John Zorn. You know, and they get like one chance to get a solo, and if the solo sucks, it's going on record. You know, it's a different vibe, and you got to like consider the context of the music and the vibe that the music's trying to put out. And so, like, we're creating very like, technical, crazy-ass music. It's hard, and we want it to sound technical and crazy and cool. Like, there's a time and place for all sorts of sounds within the context of our music. But a lot of it's like, you know, should you just be ripping this thing, or should you be really concentrating on making sure that a part is done properly and focusing on on the end result rather than how it was captured, in my yeah. opinion? I think it calls for the character of the part too. And like, for example, like there's death metal bands that actually do do it through, you know, like that Gorguts record that, um, um, colored sands, like that was for the most part, from what I understand, they played the album from start to finish. That's why you hear the, the like last couple tracks, you can start hearing like some of the fatigue set in mm-hmm. drums, especially like with long and that guy is a fucking machine, dude. And you can hear like the, human like characteristic of that record at the end of the record and it's so awesome like i love that but that's not the context of this music where it's it's like machine like almost you know and it it has to convey a machine like feel and that requires being more focused on how each part sounds and being like as precise as you possibly can but then it's like how do you how do you sound as precise and machine like as you can, but while also remaining human? So that's like a whole nother thing in itself too. So it's like you don't want to sound like guitar pro. Like no one wants to sound like that. Some bands do it, and that's great. But I feel like most people it's not don't. great. <laughs> <laughs> not great. <laughs> Sorry, go on. You want to hear like a that a human is actually playing that, right? So it's like you have to have checks and balances in effect for that. So like for me, like writing some of these songs, it's like okay, I need to do a like a human check like is this even possible to play because if like you're jumping around the fretboard so frantically like it's not it's just not gonna work live it's it's just i'm sorry it's just not gonna work and like there's checks and balances i always try to do like okay like this is a very very sick part and i love it but like let me just like try to finger it real quick and see if it's even possible to jump like that and luckily i've i've kept it in check for the most part, <laughs> there's one song that I think is going to be extremely difficult to play live. And that's our new single, Divinertia. And that's one that is is kicking my ass right now. But to go back to like the human element, like once I write the riff, I'll go back and I'll track it. Right. And then I need to stop tracking mid riff and pick up in the middle of that riff and start the next part of that riff. And then you just crossfade it because it gives a more humane or a more human, humanic kind of sound to it because you hear more nuance in the strings. Whereas like some bands, like I'm not talking shit or anything, but like some bands punch in like note for note or do it in halftime. And sometimes that works in the context of the band, but like it, you can kind of tell that it's not human. You know what I mean? So I think in order to, to like achieve a machine-like sound, but also sound human, you have to like 
take it in steps and then make sure that you're just not punching in when that last part of the riff ends. You have to start a little bit before so you can crossfade the notes. That way it sounds like more fluid and it sounds more human. I think that we also, it's also worth noting that I, and I'm sure many others, we do that vocally too, where, you know, you're, you're doing a line and maybe it's a long ass line and you get tired and you're gonna, you can probably do it, but it might end with a little croak or it might end. So you, you do half the line, super strong and half the line, super strong, but you have to overlap them in order to make sure that you're not starting in the right or in the wrong place or, you know, coming in real hard on a syllable. So it doesn't sound natural. And then you can do that and then that, and then usually that kind of helps you understand how to do it as a whole. And if you do that properly, maybe by the end of it, you can do the whole thing in one take, but like that's happening in vocals all the time where yeah, it's just know, like just we're, we're punching a line just to make sure that everything sounds strong and fierce and accurate to to the mood that we're trying yeah, to exactly like it it's just the the style that we are trying to a lot of people might not think that's cool and that's okay you know like that's just this is just what we are doing and the vision that we have to make it sound the way we want it to sound and like again it's like it's hard to sound precise and machine like and human at the same time so like this is like the best way that I've discovered that this kind of works. I mean, I don't know how much secrets we're putting out there in the universe, but this is kind of the way a lot of bands kind of like operate, you know? Well, I, I probably would have guarded what I just said a little closer until like a couple months ago, the dude from Periphery put up a video and it was awesome. And he was like, hey guys, we just put out a new record. Uh, I might be misquoting here, sorry. But it's along the lines of like, hey, we put this out. We got to start playing this song live. You might not know this, but I've literally never sang this song front to back. So I'm going to go into the studio right now. Oh, yeah. And, try that. It. and he films him doing the first time of him ever singing the song front to back. I thought that was really cool. I think that's way cooler than seeing like a polished video of you performing it well, because that's real. And like, that's a huge band. And like, being vulnerable and saying like, I don't know how to do this. And he comes out, he's like, that was pretty good. I forgot some lyrics I came in wrong. Uh, but I think, I think that would have been okay live. Like that's cool. I think that's super cool. And like would make me, you know, it got me thinking, no, I haven't performed some of these songs on the record front to back either. Like maybe, maybe that would be something cool for me, you know, cool idea for me to steal. Uh, we're, we're trying to figure out if I should do like vocal playthrough videos. And that might be like a compromise. I'd be, more interested in taking rather than doing like something super polished. Yeah. I, I don't think that it's a, like, I don't think that it's a secret that records are made like that now, but I do think that there's a lot of people who would like to think that it doesn't apply to them. So I think a lot, yeah, a lot of people think, yeah, they do it like that, but I don't have to, or like I'm better than that or something like that. But what I, I think that these techniques are not, they're not done because someone's not good. They're done to achieve a certain aesthetic and a certain type of sound. Like, for instance, I remember when drummers started using kick pads instead of kick drums on, uh, on recordings. And, you know, I've recorded a lot of great drummers with kick pads, some with real kick drums, but 
the reason for using the kick pad isn't because the drummer sucks. It's purely for mixing reasons and, you know, not having kick in all the room mics and the overheads. It just makes life a lot, a lot easier. And it makes it to where you can really have them focus on the hands. And the drummers I've done that with are some of the best drummers in metal. Like it, it, and I know that like when that first started happening, uh, people were thinking that it's something that you do to cheat or something, or that's what you do with drummers who can't play. And it's like, no, actually, uh, so you do because you don't want kick drums in your room mics. Yeah. That's actually, that's, that's why. It's also like the same with tri- triggers, right? Like people will criticize it. I, I don't know if that's what you mean by drum pad. I could be conflating. Well, but it's like the, the signal that triggers the trick sample so it's the same thing oh okay yeah but it's like what do you, do you not want your guitar to have distortion do you not play your bass out of an amp like that's kind of my thought process on drum triggering it just achieves you're still performing it and it's still creating a sound i think it's totally Plus valid. it's like let's be real like how much dynamic is really in death model like one <laughs> in the kick drum hopefully none <laughs> basically Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix a song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. So I'm curious, uh, when it comes to the other parts of the arrangements, like the weirder sounds or the layers, do you kind of take a similar sort of approach as with the vocals? Like you're saying, so with the vocals, it's all about finding a complementary rhythm and not stepping on things like get basically fitting the puzzle together. But in metal, 
lots of times when you start adding layers like synth or multiple guitar layers, it's just shit just steps on everything. And, you know, rhythm guitars already are eating up so much space. Like, and then, yeah, on your new single, all the whatever is doing, I don't know if that's a guitar or a synth or what, especially on that opening riff, like it just sounds so awesome. And I'm sure that part of it is because there's a lot of space in the riff, but just in general, when dealing with layers, how are you thinking about that arrangement wise to where you don't end up with a mess? Yeah. Like, like you said, like distortions eat up so much of the, the mid range that, and, and like the hierarchy of sound in there that it's hard to fit synth pads and other orchestral elements in there. But I noticed that like brass is a big thing that cuts through a lot and kind of equals out guitar a lot. Um, but yeah, like synth pads and some like strings are extremely hard to have it sit and to where you can distinctly tell the difference between the two. So like when I'm using like synth pads on stuff and like arranging everything, it's like, I have to use it sparingly because it's like, is there's a part that's staccato -y, you know, and there's like a lot of breath between guitar. Like you're going to be able to hear more synth elements in that as opposed to just having a gnarly riff and then just having synth over it, which happens in this record too. But I think the more prominent moments in the record where you can actually identify a synth pad or like some other cool instrumentation happening in the, in like the guitars that it's because there's room that calls for it. And uh, yeah, like the Divinertia 2, there's, I'm using a guitar, just playing one note. And then just, I threw that Valhalla Supermassive on it <laughs> and just put, put it to infinity on the mix. And it's just taking one note, a harmonic, and then just bending it and pulling it. And that's one element. And then I used um, Symphonic Destruction, uh, which is a really cool plugin. I uh, used that for like the horn kind of section, like a really reverberant horn, like CS80 kind of uh, mix going on in that. So that I think kind of cuts a little bit more too, just because of the horn. But in terms of like compositionally, like I try to find a place for parts where uh, the synth can be the highlight. I think one of our songs, Automated Twilight, uh, it's the more experimental song in the record. And who knows if people will like it or not, but I love it. It's my favorite song on the track or on the record. But that that song is like a very synth-driven song and orchestral-driven. So for me, like the guitar wasn't even important in that song for the most part. The synth was the highlight. And like I put more focus and attention into how the synth sound and the layering of the synth, like how do I make a part sound bigger with like this motif or the sequence? So like, I'll just like double up the sequence with another kind of synth that brings out a different like dynamic in the mix to kind of like pump it up more. And it's just finding space to where it makes sense and not trying to overburden spots with like immense layers. And I mean, and unfortunately that happened to us in one of the songs too, like in deletion cult, there's a chorus in that song that, has so much shit going on that Dave was like, dude, there's just so much going on here. Like we got to figure out like what you want to like highlight. We got to talk about this. I think another interesting time was on, on Diviner show one, the end section starts to get like really like the synth 
becomes really loud and really uneasy. And it's supposed to make you kind of feel like what's, what's happening. Like, why is, why is this? And like, I feel like that was maybe the only time where we're like having the hardest time to communicate that to Dave, because we were trying to figure out where it could go in the mix. And we we're like, no, it's supposed to like start to get worse. Like it's, it's supposed to be like overwhelming. It's supposed to kind of push out of where you want it to be. And it was almost like this, uh, Justin could probably explain it better because you had more conversation about it, but I thought it was pretty interesting because we were like, no, Dave, it's like supposed to sound worse here. And he's like, but I'm supposed to make it sound good. <laughs> couldn't figure out the right way to yeah because you know Dave's that. Dave's like so he's so damn good and and his his balance of everything Otero by the way at uh flatline audio he's uh he's one of the best yeah I love that guy yeah it sure is and he he's very good at balance and in the hierarchy of where things sit in a mix and when it calls for it and this was a moment at the end of Div Inertia One because it's a two-part concept song about more or less the Big Bang and, and consciousness. So at the end of Div Inertia One is where we realize in the theme that this entity is... It's supposed to feel like, like swirling thoughts, like overwhelmingly swirly thoughts, basically. Yeah, and through that, knowing that it, it explodes in this big... What, what is it? Like a Big Bang because of of it knowing it's oneness, right? Yeah. Without, without going too deep, that's kind of, you know, the theme of, of the two part song is like, there's this single thing that existed. And one day it has an idea, like, what if there was another one of me? And that kind of breaks its brain. And, you know, at one time it was this one thing, that's everything. And now it's hip to the idea that there could be another thing just like it. And since it's everything, once it thought about the other one, now there is another one. It wills it into existence and it basically happens over and over and over again. So we have this part at the end of the song where it's just like really crazy vocals, like really crazy big guitar chords being played, lots of swirling synth going around. And it's supposed to kind of sound like this, like, uh, and then, then you explode into part yeah, two. Exactly. So it's like if you were to put it like the Big Bang is happening, like this is like the final moments before the Big Bang happens. So it's supposed to sound uneasy and like like everything's about to explode and everything's coming unhinged. So that's where like everything's like driving and building and like becoming more intense. And then finally you get the release, which is part two. And that's like the fallout of the Big Bang and the culmination of all that. So that's why it sounds like so like at least in my eyes, I, I see it as like, it's just kind of expanding and there's heat and like, I don't know. And then you just have this pulsating kind of sound, which is the heartbeat of the universe kind of. So that's kind of like where I see it. But yeah, like going back to like, we had to tell Dave, like, no, it's like supposed to sound like things are going to come unhinged. Like something's about to explode. Like it's not supposed to sound like nice. It's supposed to sound uneasy. And, and mm -hmm. that was like kind of the introduction to part two which is then you can start sounding great again. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, that was like a conversation, um, which was interesting to have with Dave. Cause he's so like very detail oriented with his balance of everything. How do you balance chaos? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And also like we've worked so like, I think our record sounds incredible due to Dave's work. It like, it's, it's funny. It does. After, after it's like, wow, this is beautiful. 
make it worse for these 30 seconds, please. Like that's a hard, a hard ask. Cause it's like, what? I just made it perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah. And then I think that was probably the only real moment where it's like the synth needs to like take over everything. And then there are some couple moments in, in the title track where the synth is the highlight of the song. And also in Div Inertia one where, the guitar atmosphere, like the chords that are played are more of the highlight than the rhythm happening because the rhythm is just kind of static and the chords and the, and the harmonic palette of that is the more of the focus. So that was uh, getting balance of that took some tries to get that. And then I think we got that figured out pretty well. You know, I think that a good mixer or a great mixer, here's what I've noticed with uh, metal mixers is no matter how sick they are, if you're going to bring non-traditional elements in, you got to talk them through it or else you're just kind of, it's just luck of the draw if they're going to just understand exactly how it needs to be like balanced. Like it's, it's asking a lot to just expect a mixer to get it when yeah. you're, when you're bringing something that's yeah, like some unique part that has that is not the traditional arrangement. That is a very specific thing. In my experience, you've got to like work them through it basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's like telling them like, okay, like this has to be like more of a focus. And, and to Dave's point, like he's like the, the one, like the one doing the reality check. He's like, dude, like if you do that, you're going to lose half of the headroom for this, 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 this. I'm like, okay, well, I wouldn't have known that because I'm not, I'm not a mixing engineer. I'm not good at it at all. But like for me as a guitar player, like, no, I want this to be loud now. Now I want this to be loud. And then Dave's like, okay, dude, like I get that, but this is why we have to do it this way. So it was like, for me, it was just like trying to like explain that to him. And we did find a medium to where it worked well, but it took Dave to kind of reality check me in certain moments where like, yeah, you can't really do that because of this because it will suck up this out of the mix. And then now all you're going to hear is just like farty synth. And it's like, yeah, I definitely don't want that. So I think it was like a balance between just like working with Dave and, and being like, yeah, we need synth to pop more here. And then him like working in the way he does his mix into also bringing out what I envision in the, in like the hierarchy of sound too. So and like I learn a lot too from working with Dave and how he mixes and how things need to sit in the mix because it's like I always reference and I, I'm sure a lot of people do. They always reference the demos, you know, and you're like, but in the demo, like it's this loud and and like it needs to cut like that, and and then it's just like no, like there's that's a demo, dude. Like it's not supposed to sound anywhere. Like yeah, what about everything else that's playing in that part of the demo? Yeah, exactly. The demo like doesn't tell like an auditory story or you know it's not representative of a final package. That's why it's a freaking demo. So but yeah, it is hard to get caught up because it's like, oh I can't like hear that lick as well, or oh like Brandon hit that bass thing crazy in the demo. Why can't I hear it as well here? It's like you probably played it different. <laughs> like it's yeah, it's okay. It's I think that you know, the, the flip side to what I said earlier about you got to walk them through those non-traditional parts is on the musician side, you got to be willing to make some concessions for the mix. 
the way that you hear it in your head is a fantasy. Like the reality of what speakers can reproduce is a whole other thing. And for anything to be in a mix, something else kind of needs to be sacrificed. Like there's always, there's a cost to everything. So, you know, you want to have loud orchestra, you're not going to really have loud orchestra and then loud technical riffs and then loud drums and then loud vocals and then loud uh, leads and then bass. Like, it's just got to make some, got to make some choices, basically. Exactly. I do want to respond to like the idea of it's a fantasy in your head. I think that Data Elysium, our record, is as close to like how I can imagine it in my head. There are a couple moments where I wish we had like even half a day longer. I think we could have really polished some of the parts where I'm still kind of like, ah, I hear it differently in my head. But like we went out to Dave Otero's place in Colorado and we sat in the room and we listened to a song like loud as fuck in his tuned room. And it was just like, it was like a religious experience. Like we all just like looked at each other, like kind of bleary eyed, like, Oh my God, like we've been working so hard on this and he, he made it sound like we dreamt. Yeah. And like, I just want to give like a major shout out to Dave Otero because I, I can't believe how it sounds to be honest. I, I hit him up right after I heard it actually to tell him how amazing it sounds. It really does. Yeah. He, he really like, it's funny that you mentioned the fantasy thing. Cause it's, I, I'm sure a lot of people do like they get caught up in the fantasy where it's like, they hear it in their heads a certain way or a certain part pops a certain way. But, and that's where it comes to like working with the mixing engineer and him giving you some insight into why things have to be this way, because then you, you have to have like the fantasy starts becoming like a reality check. So it kind of, it like works. And Dave was like, not only been able to like replicate most of the fantasy that you hear in your head, but like take it a step further in a direction that you didn't even think was possible. And that's why like working with Dave was like so somewhat magical because that guy like just gets it. And he was doing stuff and bringing some shit out of Derek that I didn't even know Derek had in him. I'm like, holy shit, that's crazy, dude. Like, uh, especially... We didn't even track with Dave, uh, but like there was a couple parts, you know, where for those of you who don't know, there's like a, like a housing area that you can stay at, at Dave's studio, which is pretty cool. And like, we, we brought a microphone in there just in case we wanted to, to track something. We knew we had a couple like small things that we wanted to patch or, you know, something or other that we were going to have to do. So like literally in the, the last hour I was there, it was just like, hey, go go in the booth real quick and like get some shit done. And he did some, you know, he was like, try this, try that, try this. And just like working an hour or two vocally with him was was really cool. And like got some really interesting takes. Uh, Justin mentioned this, this track called Automated Twilight. And like we did a lot of vocal tracking for that in like that hour or two. And it sounds crazy. Like, it, yeah, I've never done vocals like that before. And I'm excited for people to hear it. Yeah. But yeah, he, he pulled a lot out and I was like super impressed with how he was able to collaborate with the songs because again, these songs aren't easy to like understand the first time you hear them. And he probably had like a few days or I don't know how long you sent the demos to him in advance, but like by the time I got to the studio, I got there a day or two later than the guys. 
he had like an advanced knowledge of the songs and the riffs and he could hum every riff and he was able to be like, well, I like this part and I think it should be highlighted. Like he was able to contribute in an impactful way that I was super impressed with and like look forward to working with him more in the future, just based on how musically intelligent he is. Yeah, absolutely. Like even like with, with my singing parts, like most of my singing parts weren't completed. So I did some at Dave's and he was able, he's got like such a great like sense of melody too, that he was able to like take some of the, of the vocal takes and like just have ideas of where the melody should go and some of the harmony. And I'm like, well, I never would have thought of that. And it like turned out to be 10 times more epic than it originally was like, it's crazy that it turned out the way it did. Cause then I would, that was a moment for me in automated twilight, the singing, I was just so scared of like what to do. Cause I had no idea what to do. And I was honestly hoping Ishan, cause we, we asked Ishan to do a guest vocal, but he's like, he's a really busy guy. So he wasn't able to do it, but I was like hoping he would be able to figure it out. Cause I, <laughs> I love that guy's like, since he's incredible. So like I took a page out of his book and then like really got down on some of his solo stuff. And even like I was gotten a leprous too. And I'm like thinking, okay, what can I do on this vocal part to like even come anywhere near the insanity and like epicness of what Ishan is? So like I really tried to just channel that as much as I could. And and with Dave, and having Dave know that, I'm like, yeah, like we're trying to sound like that and like have it sound like make it this really epic mountaintop kind of vocal sound and and dave was able to like oh yeah yeah yeah, do this 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 and like i'm gonna do this and we're gonna add harmony there i'm like oh shit like that's awesome dude i never would have been able to figure that out without dave so it's like cool to work with someone who just gets it you know he he mixed a single for us to cover and um he got it so well when i told him what we were doing like he was all about finding a modern version of the vocal effect from the original and like really like like he really like understood what we were trying to do with it and he didn't need to explain it and it's uh the first time I've ever gotten a mix back where I've just been like well all right well this is done <laughs> cool and that's not shitting on anybody cuz um like everyone we've worked with is a great mixer, but like it's the first time I've ever just gotten one back and just been like, all right, I got no mix notes. Yeah. That's wow. like a cool feeling, like not having to like think about it. And I like, Oh, well, what do I even, what can I even say at this point? You know, like it's, it's there. So our experience, even like, even the mixes we had mix notes on, we're still like, we could put this out and it would be perfect. But, you know, like day to day, hour to hour, things change. But like the first swing was like incredible. Yeah. You know, what you're describing now, in my opinion, is like why a good producer is so valuable. A great producer, they'll bring the stuff out that you just didn't know you had. Like that's that I think at the end of the day, that's basically it. Like the songs leave their place better than they went in. Um, exactly. When, whether that means that they just like mixed it great or captured you like in, you know, the best possible way or, you know, suggested things that just isn't your wheelhouse that you just wouldn't have thought of like whatever it is, 
like big or small, like the songs leave better than they went in. I think, and that's massive. That's worth it. That's totally worth it, in my opinion. I think on the subject that we were talking about earlier, like objectivity, they're also a very objective uh, observer, right? Because they, I, I met Dave the day that I got to the studio. He doesn't know my my um, constraints or what I think is cool or what I'm willing to try or not. But I'm there to like also be objective and take his his suggestions for what he thinks is going to work best for the style of mixing that he's about to do for us. So it's like kind of this cool empty slate of someone who doesn't necessarily understand your your boundaries who can be like give that a shot and who am i to say no when somebody that we've hired to make us sound cool is telling me to do something that's gonna potentially sound cool if it sucks it sucks but you got to try it because this person can help bring something out that you might not know was there yep have you guys worked with like a great producer before that's not in the band i mean so, I think it's just like been me in the room and then like collabing with like Derek and then Brandon and then Chris on, on parts, getting opinions from everyone, sending it out to Ryan Williams at Metal Blade and getting his idea, like just kind of like hearing like constructive criticism from people. But as, as, a, as like a producer in the room, I've never really had that. It's pretty awesome, man. Like the... First time that I had that happen, I don't know. It was like transformative. It was transformative because the songs just got so much better. It wasn't because like the producer like made the songs for us or anything. It was just they helped find the potential in the songs. And I played so much better than if I was tracking myself just because I'm talking about uh, Sukov. Mm -hmm. So Sukov was like the first time that I was uh, produced the concealers record for Doth, and just like nothing changed, right? Like it's not like I suddenly got better there. It's just he knew the shit to say to get me to play better than I thought I was capable of. You know, that's a it's a rare gift. A lot of a lot of it's a rare gift, and I think that until you've kind of like experienced it like your song just getting that much better because someone is like, try this. It's hard to understand the value in it because it's like, well, we can record yeah. ourselves. I, I think that like, I haven't even understood its full value until this discussion right now. Like it's pulling new ideas out of me about why it's important. And like, to be clear, like we came to the studio with, a 99% completed record. Like we didn't track much with him except for like, we got to do like these four vocal lines mm -hmm. or like these eight vocal lines. And just that experience of being able to collaborate in that way, like talking back and reflecting on it in this moment is like, Oh shit, that was like awesome. And like, I hope you have the opportunity to do that again. I think we're going to try to do more, uh, you know, spend more time, at the studio next time and you know be more collaborative in that way yeah definitely next record with dave like tracking vocals because it's also a more experimental record so I'm, I'm like really interested to see what he can pull out of us 
I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be great. Like, I think, uh, you know, there's something to be said for if you're really good at tracking yourself, like for instance, the way that you know how to track yourself and edit yourself and all that, what I've noticed too is musicians like that who kind of have a flow, it's oftentimes it's good for them to track themselves or do their thing. Cause like just adding an engineer or a producer into that equation, like you're probably going to be thinking faster than them about how you do your thing. Cause you're like so dialed into how you do your thing. And so I've noticed that sometimes like that doesn't always work just because you're sitting there getting tracked by someone who doesn't move like at your RPM about with the same types of things. And like that can get a little weird, but I think that there's, there's certain things where an outside producer, I feel like really, really helps. Like, I feel like it helps a lot, like with the overall songs, like the structure, are they boring? Like, like just an objective look at this thing that you're so close to. And then also really for vocals. I find that that's like really where a great producer makes their money is the vocals. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, especially considering this is like my first time having dealt with like a producer slash and mixing and mastering engineer, like that's like a very rare thing, like you mentioned. So uh, it makes you like just more grateful to even be in that situation and work with someone like that and like have that like ability to bounce ideas off someone like that as if they are another person in the band, which is cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome when you first hear your shit back and it sounds like better than you could have ever imagined, or like you said, close actually close to what you were imagining. That's pretty cool. That's also pretty transformative, I think. I think an interesting part of the experience too was like we had to step into the vocal booth and I was like nervous because, you know, again, I, I barely know the dude. It's kind of like vulnerable thing being in front of a microphone doing death metal vocals. It's, it's pretty like silly out of context, right? You're like, I don't know about y'all vocalists out there, but I'm like yelling as loud as humanly possible at every second of my performance. Like it's not a comfortable thing. There's <laughs> yeah. not much, to, there's not much technique involved. It, it's pretty different every time I try and trying to capture that. So I was like, fuck, I gotta like do vocals with, with this dude, Dave, like who, whose work I've listened to for, you know, over 10 years, you know, I love a lot of the records he's mixed and it's like, Oh man, like what if I can't get through the line? You know? So I, I kind of started, I, like, oh, I apologize. Like if I'm not able to get through the line, like it, it might take a couple of tries. And he's like, it is death metal. Like, of course you're not going to get through it. And it's like, okay. Like I was like instantly so comfortable, like back to the topic we were discussing earlier. And like, he made it very easy and like made, made me want to have more fun and like get weirder at times like instantly because he was like, this is going to sound dumb, but it'd probably sound cool in context. And just like having a little bit of that confidence boost when you're in the studio really helps because you had asked if we'd ever worked with a producer and like, I've only ever worked with an in-band producer. Like actually don't have that many records under my belt, but they've, you know, when I was in the faceless, we tracked with, with Mike Keen 
And then when I tracked for my other project, John Frum, I, I also tracked vocals with Mike, even though I had quit the faceless. Um, and then we finished some of the songs with the band uh, on the East Coast. So like, I've never had a person who's not in the band. And that was like kind of scary for me as uh, uncomfortable because it's like, oh God, like this guy might, might make fun of me if my voice cracks. Or, you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I get it. I make fun of myself if it does. And then this person I don't know is going to do it. Ah, shit. Yeah. The first time for me, it was, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you know, Sukov is like an incredible guitar player. So um, for me, it was, I was like stressed the fuck out as of like, not to play in front of them and like look like an idiot and like, this is going to suck. And like, he's recorded all these great, players and like the other player in my band is incredible. And like this, he was just like, dude, just punch in. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> That's what we did. It was totally, it's like, it's not a big deal. And I've noticed that too, like when recording bands or, you know, even when we have people come on nail the mix, it's really similar. Like you get a lot of producers who do nail the mix who have never been on camera before. They've never talked about, what they do. They just do it. And so they're like nervous as fuck. They shouldn't be, but they are. And it's understandable because I know public speaking is scary for a lot of people. And, you know, the musicians are the ones who are used to being on camera, not mixers or producers generally. So I always tell them that you're just doing, just doing the thing you do every day and just talking about it. And like, I'm going to be there and ask you questions about it. And it's going to be fun. Like this is, this is what you do literally every day. The only difference is you're talking about it as opposed to sitting there by yourself quiet. Like, you know, this shit, like if you didn't, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Like just talk about the thing, you know, and then it, once we get into it, like one minute into it, they're fine. Always. Yeah, it's weird. It's like a weird, like the red light thing, you know, like when it's yeah. on, it's immediately freak out. Even though it's like five seconds before you're just a normal person. It's really weird how that operates. It still happens. Like it happens to me, like when I'm writing a riff, even like, okay, I know, th I know this part's sick. I'm going to track it now. Nope, it's gone. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird, but that's happened to me also when, filming playthroughs or something. I've been practicing the song. I can play it. And then the camera comes on and I'm just like tense. It's like playing like shit. And it takes like two or three times through to calm down and just be like, okay, it's fine. But like that first, the first time through, I'm just like, yeah, I'm just like tense and like in like fight or flight mode or something. Yeah. It's a weird feeling, but I don't know if this happens to you, but like if you play in a crowd, like it doesn't really happen. No. Weird. I guess the only time that it has happened for me in front of a crowd has been like those really bad shows, like the really bad ones where like everybody fucking hates you. And there's like 15 of them. Those like really bad early day shows would make me self-conscious, but like uh, never really live. Strictly like a recording thing. Yeah, it's weird, especially like, yeah, the playthrough thing, like you mentioned. Some about playthroughs, man, they just freak out in live streams, like 
I did a couple of live streams with Kiesel and oh my God, dude, it's so scary. But if I get on Twitch in my own, the comfort of my own studio, it's not a big deal. But for some reason, yeah, some, something about playthroughs screw me up, dude. I think there's different psychouts live too, because like when you play, you have to accept like you're going to, you're playing a show. There's, there's other things that are more stressful, I think, than playing when you're playing a show. Like, oh God, is the battery going to run out in my ears? Uh, for example, on this last run we did, I left my my boots backstage at a venue and I had to play like four shows. All I brought on this tour were Crocs and my boots. Oh, God. And we were on our <laughs> way home. I'm not like going to buy new shoes. You know, I got plenty of shoes in the closet over here. So I had to play like three or four shows in my Crocs and it felt like really silly, like walking out in the stage. <laughs> and it was really silly. And I was just like, this is what it's going to be. It. Like somebody's probably going to make fun of me for this. This sucks, but it was. And then we only got one heckler and I defended the Crocs. because They're comfortable. I, I wish they, <laughs> they should make like That's awesome stage, stage Crocs or something. Cause man, they're good for your feet. I'll tell you what. Like the dot croc crossover. <laughs> dot crocs. Yeah. No, I, you're right though. I think playing live, there's so many other things that can go wrong. They, you have to like be continually improvising around like shit breaking, like the time that you start and end. Like, are you getting hit in the face by a flying project by a projectile? Like there's like so many, like, How's that burger sitting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're going to shit on the stage. Like there's like, there's so many different factors live that I think that playing is just one of them. I think. Even between songs, I get nervous. Like it's not about going on stage and playing, but like I'm still getting used to playing in in-ears and like understanding. I don't like a lot of our songs are cued in by by samples or like there's a lot of like textural sample stuff. But if I have that in my ears during the song, it's really distracting and it'll cause me to mess up in the song. So I actually don't have those samples in my ears. So I'm like trying to listen to front of house and make sure I'm talking enough or at the right time. And I go, wait, is this one 30 seconds between the song before we start again? And then like the click will, will like snap me back to attention. But I, I get like, you know, Oh God, I'm, What's the first word of this song? Uh, is it this song or is it like I, I get distracted between because there's time to think. Whereas when you're performing, you don't have time to think. You've got a job to do and like you know how to do it. It's pretty innate. I'm a new member at this point of this band, right? There's like plenty of other songs that I've never performed. So like a lot of the lyrics aren't ingrained into my head. And like if I if I miss the first word of the song, or if I like I'm questioning it. Like the whole string is, is broken. Yeah. Or like, you know, if, if I miss a word somewhere in the center, it's hard for me to get back on. So like, I get kind of stressed out thinking about like, all right, I better start the train on time or else it's going to derail. And then it's like, and I'm like, Oh fuck, let's go. I get, I get away from those intrusive thoughts. So I think there's something about all the other shit that can happen while you're playing that playing becomes the the least stressful thing. And it's like, you're just an autopilot. Man, those thoughts are a real problem uh, for me. Like I've been like trying to pay attention to them a lot. Like the, those distracting thoughts, because 
when playing something because it's one of those things where if I like my attention diverts for a second, then I'm still, mm-hmm. it's like I lost. Yeah. I'm lost. And so it's, it's, how do you deal with that? That's a great question. I think the biggest way of not dealing or of dealing with that rather is we have decided as a band to not drink beer before we play like at any <laughs> point in the day. Uh, we discovered that uh, it's a, uh, I ride a motorcycle sometimes too, and it's made me very keen to how much a drink can impact your reaction or judgment or ability to perform at your uh, best ability. But like we were jamming at this spot, renting a spot. It was like next door to a brewery. And we like finally were feeling comfortable with the set. And we are like, Sick, let's go have a drink, like a victory drink. And then we'll come back and run the set a couple more times. We had a beer. And we came back and it was just like, uh, we, we could not perform a song. And so like staying clear minded before we play, I think is a big part of keeping those intrusive thoughts out and just making sure that like we're focused on the, the job at hand, which is putting on a good show and playing these incredibly difficult songs at the highest ability that we can. And just make, making sure that the the focus is clear that like we're we're there to have a good time and people are there to have a good time and like ultimately it's it's entertainment right and like entertainment is cool and entertainment is fun so I think that helps me like rationalize what we're doing and not like you know I take it very seriously when we're performing but part of taking it seriously is understanding that it's supposed to be fun yeah I think a lot of it's muscle memory too like I've been performing death metal for a long fucking time now it's it's easy for me like i don't really practice vocals i don't i mentioned i don't have any technique i just like show up and i i perform the songs it's second nature so really like this stuff that i was mentioning earlier is just kind of like the funny thoughts that happen like i'm not like having stage fright or, or actually concerned but sometimes we have like a minute between a song because you know something has to happen and i I mean, it's a long time, man. It's a long time. And like, you, you can have thousands of thoughts in a minute. And until I hear like the, the starting bell, of like, Comfort. I'm pretty lost. You know, I'm in my own thoughts. And then instinct kicks in. I think it's funny. Like, I played most of my career without in-ear monitors. So it's easy just to kind of get like, and as a, as a vocalist with no script to say shit between songs, I'll just like rant about my day or, you know, talk about something funny or whatever video game came out that week. Or I don't know what I'm, what I'm talking about, but like my favorite dude is like Frank Mullen. And then like, oh, yeah. <laughs> parents just going like, they're you know playing, playing like the Jaws theme when Frank is going a little too <laughs> off the deep end. And that that's pretty funny. Like when you're a band that doesn't play to a click, maybe they do now for, for all I know, like a lot of bands are on it now, but yeah, it, it's pretty funny to like snap your front man back into to place or get, or the drummer just counts in the song and interrupts you because you're <laughs> rambling. So it, it's less about like, Oh man, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to suck tonight. I, I never really think I'm going to suck tonight. And even if I do, I, I typically leave the stage being like, Oh, actually that was pretty sick. Like we're, we're, we're good. You know, even, even if it wasn't my best, we're still a pretty cool band. And I think just trying to stay positive and, and keeping things in, in context that we're, we're playing extreme death metal on a pretty like small circuit to a very niche crowd. And they're all, people are there to like 
enjoy the music and we're there to enjoy playing it. I think that helps. Yeah. I think that's a good ending thought. I want to uh, thank you both for taking the time to hang out. It's been an absolute pleasure and totally serious. Uh, The record is great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. And to to anybody listening, we are the Zenith Passage. We've got a new record, Data Elysium, coming out on July 21st via Metal Blade Records. Check it out. Check it out. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy. And of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.